Welcome to this edition of JumboCast, the podcast. We've got an exciting week of sports as we're recording today on Friday, February 12th, 2021. I'm your host, Sam Brill. We remain patiently waiting as the NESCAC presidents have pushed back their date to make a decision regarding play this spring. They say we'll wait and see how the COVID numbers look in a couple of weeks. As we wait, we'll bring you our insights on this week of sports. We'll talk some NFL with Trevor Russo after Tom Brady won his seventh ring and J.J. Watt was granted his release by the Texans. Some Australian Open tennis with Max Goldfarb as the state of Victoria goes back into COVID lockdown mid-tournament. Some soccer with Lucas Pyle. And last for the pro sports, we'll talk to Jenny Liu about the NBA. In the Athletes Corner this week, we'll have Noah Goldstein, who will talk with Travis Clawson of Tufts Golf. Hey, Trevor, thanks for joining us today. Hey, Sam. Good to talk to you. Let's talk about the Super Bowl. Who do you think is most at fault for the Chiefs' collapse? All right. So, um, first of all, I'm going to put this out there. I'm going to say I don't think the refs were as big of a part of the loss as everyone else thinks it was. Um, I'm sure I, I do agree that I think the fouls were pretty slanted in the uh, in the direction of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. I mean, if you look at the penalty yardage and you look at the, the way that they were calling sort of unsportsmanlike conduct and stuff like that, especially, you know, uh, with the Tyron Matthews stuff. But a lot of those flags I do feel were very fair. Uh, Kansas City, as Romo pointed out very early in the game, uh, plays a style of secondary that's very physical because they don't exactly have sort of that that pure cover talent. So they do try to grab and hold. And uh, it's been pointed out a couple times before that they actually um, have gotten away with these sorts of flags uh, the entire season. Um, and uh, overall, I mean, they did give up 31 points, which it's definitely a lot, but... I think the real story, as everyone knows, is the fact that their offense, the one well, you know, one of the historic offenses that we've seen in the past ten years or so, Kansas City, so explosive, only scoring nine points and especially no touchdowns. Um, Patrick Mahomes, I think he played an okay game. I think definitely there were points where he held the ball uh, a little too long and refused to take the check down, but. Also, if you think of how the Tampa Bay defense was playing in that game, they probably were they were sniffing out most of uh, the screenplays. I'd I'd also say that the um, you know people pointed out the offensive line being a huge culprit, and I'd probably identify them as uh, like you guys were actually saying in our group chat before. Uh, probably one of the biggest reasons why uh, the Chiefs were not able to put up an offensive performance uh, that, you know, even resembles what they were doing throughout the season. Of course, tackle Eric Fisher uh, tore his Achilles in the winding moments of the AFC championship game. They already, I believe, had Mitchell Schwartz out. So you have shuffling uh, three offensive line positions, especially in the Super Bowl. That's not a good recipe for success. But uh, I also want to put fault on the, uh, I think, their number one. Uh, and number two, I think, is the skill position players. I'm just going to lump them all in here. They were uh, pretty awful, uh, all things considered. Um, Clyde Edwards-Alaire, I don't think he's shown anything. or He's certainly not shown anything encouraging for being that true number one back. Doesn't really have the power. Uh, needs to have that hole in order to make use of his speed. Um, he was virtually a non-factor for most of the night. 
Um, Tyreek Hill, of course, uh, was largely held in check by Carlton Davis, who played a fantastic game on the back end. Uh, he uh, also dropped a bunch of crucial balls. Travis Kelsey, although he has six catches uh, for 101, he also had some pretty crucial drops. And when you look at Kansas City, they really, all they've been able to do this season is Travis Kelsey and Tyree Kill. Those two have been a deadly combo, but no one else on the team was stepping up. You didn't have uh, Sammy Watkins didn't do anything. Byron Pringle, uh, you know, he was great on special teams, but didn't give much on offense. Uh, And Nicole Hardman, I think, is proving to be sort of a disappointment after being drafted uh, very high by the Kansas City Chiefs two years ago. So if I'm Kansas City, I say that they have to acquire a number two wide receiver or someone who can allow Travis Kelsey to play out wide a lot more because they are very limited on offense if you can corral those two like the Tampa Bay defense did. Absolutely. And Tom Brady goes out and wins another Super Bowl MVP. Do you think he deserves all of that credit or do you think the Bucks D needs more? Uh, I think that, well, Listen, I am a, a big supporter of that Tampa Bay defense. I mean, I don't think I've seen a defensive unit that has so much skill at basically every single position across uh, across the 11. You know, you have the great play of like Vita Vea, who allowed the Buccaneers to be the best team against the Rush this year. You had Carlton Davis, Sean Murphy bunting, uh, you know, you have the great pass rushing duo and Shaq Barrett and uh, Jason Pierre-Paul. And of course, you have uh, everyone has been raving about Devin White, and he plays fantastic uh, in this game as well. But I don't know. If I had to give a defensive MVP, I'd actually say it was Levante David for mostly holding in uh, Travis Kelsey in check and relegating him to the end of the game. Uh, but the thing is, I think we all know the quarterback is always going to be the one that people look for uh, when giving out that Super Bowl MVP trophy. And as long as they don't play bad and no one has an exceptional performance, uh, I think that if, if I had an MVP on the defensive side, of course, I think I'd give it to either Levante David or Devin White. But I think Tom Brady, um, it's kind of funny how, you know, in this game where Tom Brady was sort of the central figure, it feels like he's almost near the bottom of what we're talking about that happened during the game. But if you look at his stat line, uh, 21 for 29, 201 yards, three touchdowns, no interceptions. That is a Super Bowl-worthy performance, especially how well he was converting those scoring opportunities early in the game. Uh, Yeah, he's my Super Bowl MVP. I don't think you really can give it to anyone else unless, let's say, Devin White also had a pick six or Levante David had like a strip sack or something like that. Um, yeah, Tom Brady's my Super Bowl MVP, you know, not like an amazing performance necessarily, but I think because there was such great play all across the defense, it's hard to give it to one player. While we're on the subject of a quarterback's league where Tom Brady was so great in that game, do you think that Justin Herbert deserves offensive rookie of the year over the stunning performance from Justin Jefferson this season? Listen, Justin Jefferson, every time I hear that name, it, 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 it hurts. It hurts my soul as an Eagles fan. Uh, one pick before, I can't really talk because uh, I actually was happy about Jalen Rager. I was not a huge fan of Justin Jefferson coming out. Uh, shows you what I know about college football, I guess. But um, yeah, he he had an exceptional year. Um, you know, basically broke 
rookie records was up near the top of the uh, NFL wide receivers in his first year, which it's very hard, as we've seen, to uh, have the skills to be ready from day one as a wide receiver, especially, I believe, after he was the fifth one off the board. Um, however, I will say, if you compare the uh, if you compare how hard it is to start on day one as a wide receiver to how hard it is to start day one as a quarterback and dominate, I'd say that, you know, I think you pick quarterback every time. It's so difficult, as we know, in the NFL to play quarterback. And while Justin Jefferson did break all these receiving records, you know, uh, Justin Herbert was also breaking rookie quarterbacking records all over the place. And, uh, you know, I think that he was definitely given a raw deal by some of that uh, poor offensive play calling in San Diego and especially the decision making by uh, Anthony Lynn. But he wildly exceeded any expectations for anyone ha- that anyone had for him, uh, had essentially uh, a, a Pro Bowl type season at rookie quarterback, which I think it's remarkable. I definitely give it to Herbert uh, over Jefferson, but it's it's pretty close. And I think. If Herbert even struggled a little bit, it would have gone to Jefferson. So let's take it a little bit around the league now. What's your take on the J.J. Watt situation in Houston? And and what does that turmoil and, and these, this new concept of player leverage in the NFL, what could that potentially mean in the future? Yeah, uh, it was pretty it was pretty shocking. I rolled out of bed this morning, checked my phone, and saw that J.J. Watt, the face of the Houston Texans, had uh, basically negotiated a release with uh, with the team he had set so many records with and uh, gotten that huge contract and ultimately is probably going to go into the Hall of Fame as a player of the Texans. Um, it's it's shocking, to say the least. I mean, uh, we were discussing a little bit before, but the fact is I don't think there was going to be that big of a trade market, and I honestly think that the uh, the implosion around Houston right now would have made the... Uh, circumstances of a trade really hard. I mean, we're talking about a team that I believe just a couple days ago, uh, their team president just uh, just walked off and quit. I mean, the Houston Texans are imploding at a rate I have not seen a team do in the NFL in some time. I mean, they're, they're, I saw a list earlier. Basically, they've in one year, they've jettisoned DeAndre Hopkins, Bill O'Brien, uh, the team president of the Texans, uh, who I should really know his name, J.J. Watt, and now Deshaun Watson also wants out. I don't know if the Houston Texans are going to let him go, because if he goes, I think this this could set off a tidal wave in the NFL of player leverage. Uh, you know, you usually look at the NBA as the sort of league where the players sort of run the show, and for a while it has been sort of the owners and the GMs and the coaches who have been able to mostly keep players in check, but uh, I mean, you're seeing news pop up all over the place of just players who are unhappy where they are. Uh, notable examples include Carson Wentz, I guess also J.J. Watt until he was now released, uh, Deshaun Watson. We're hearing Russell Wilson, who, you know, you usually don't hear anything about him all of a sudden coming out, uh, showing distaste with the way that Seattle has protected him, which you know, it's pretty fair. He has been sacked almost 400 times in nine seasons. Uh, but I do think that uh, it's going to be very interesting to watch over the next 
week or so to see if teams will actually give in to the uh, to the players' demands. Because if you think about it, right, if if teams uh, signal that if you make sort of a fuss, then you can get out of your contract. I think that it's gonna. I think you're gonna see sort of a a wave of player agency that we haven't seen in the NFL, uh, maybe ever. I mean, I think the the uh, the first domino to fall in that. I think the Deshaun Watson situation is the most important one to monitor in that. And I think seeing JJ Watt go, maybe it's a precursor of that. We'll have to see. And last but certainly not least, and this one requires a longer answer. I'll try to pack it in shortly, but is Tom Brady truly the GOAT after winning his seventh win in Tampa Bay? Some are comparing him to Jordan. Some are saying he's better. What's your take? Oh, we're going multi-sport now. (laughs) I didn't know about that angle of this question. I'll try to keep it short because I know I've been a little long in these answers, but uh, in short, I think yes. I think he was the GOAT before uh, Super Bowl uh, 55 and winning that, you know, um, I think that six Super Bowls in, we're talking about before this year, six Super Bowls in a sport with such a stringent requirement as the salary cap, I think that already cemented Tom Brady as the go, maybe not cemented, but solidified him. But now I think that the bust is sealed and you can start carving it out. I don't think that anyone is going to be able to win seven Super Bowls, much less go to a new team during the coronavirus. No OTAs, barely any time to learn the playbook. New offensive system where, you know, all of a sudden Tom Brady has to air it out deep at age 43 and beat the the quarterback who everyone is proclaiming as maybe the next goat, which the next goat is kind of a dumb phraseology because, I mean, how can there be more than one goat? It's just one, and it is Tom Brady. I think that also the only quarterback to beat Patrick Mahomes twice in the playoffs is Brady himself. This man is incredible. Uh, I've been watching the videos actually of him partying so uh, and throwing the Lombardi trophy over a river. Uh, crazy stuff out of him. Um, I do think that uh, I think it's just so hard to compare goats across sports, right? Because it's just in basketball, there's only five players on the court at a single time. Um, would I say that he's better than Jordan? Uh, I don't know. I think there's so many factors that surround it. I know you don't want this non-answer out of me, Sam, but uh, I don't know if that's a... <laughs> a landmine discussion I can go into at this point. Uh, But yeah, I think in terms of football, I would say that Tom Brady is the undisputed king and there will never be another like him in the NFL. All right, Trevor, thanks for joining us today. And we'll use that goat talk to segue over to the Australian Open where Max Goldfarb is joining us today. Max, thanks for joining us. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So do you think that Serena Williams can win her first major title since 2017? She's got 23 Grand Slams on her career, just one shy of Margaret Court. Do you think that she can tie and maybe even find number 24 and 25 in this year or potentially even at this Australian Open? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a pretty good chance. Um, The field to me seems pretty wide open. As we saw a couple of days ago, Sophia Kennan, the reigning Australian Open champ, lost in the second round. And 
you know, if you look at the uh, if you look at the recent Grand Slam results, there have been different winners in the past six Grand Slams, and I'll I'll argue that Kenin was the closest thing to consistent uh, with a finals appearance in the French Open of last year after having won the Australian earlier in the year. Um, and and as far as Serena's profile these past few years, you know, on the surface it seems somewhat disappointing that she hasn't won a title uh, in the past three years. However, I don't think it really tells the whole story. I mean, we talk about consistency. I mean, she made four finals since 2017, and no one has made uh, as many appearances in the final in that stretch. And it's really no surprise. I mean, she's been the queen of the sport. I would argue she's on her way to becoming the GOAT. Certainly uh, can be cemented with a couple more Grand Slam titles uh, before the end of her career. And if we look at her results in this uh, in this tournament specifically, she hasn't dropped the set yet. Granted, uh, as we were kind of going back and forth about Sam last night, she did cut it close with the tiebreak uh, in, in the first set of her match yesterday. Um, but, yeah, I think she's well on her way. Um, until someone proves otherwise, I don't see any woman in the field, any woman in women's tennis right now who has sort of gotten to Serena level of consistency yet. And she's got a tough match ahead against Arena Sabalenka next, but let's pivot and talk a little bit about the men's side. We saw Djokovic this morning, very early this morning, almost falling to Taylor Fritz because of an injury. Rafa Nadal also battling injuries right now. The men's field, which is usually hyper-focused on the big three of Djokovic, Nadal, and Federer. Do you think that a dark horse could take this major? The last dark horse to take one was Dominic Team, who, albeit not a huge dark horse, was the favorite once Djokovic fell. But could you see a dark horse taking this one? Yeah, I think this, uh, this tournament, sort of like you were saying with the U.S. Open, really, really resembles that tournament as well in the sense that we have a, a crippled big three, if you will, with Federer out with injury, Nadal and Djokovic with ailments as well. And, and you know, interestingly enough, you have to go back to 2016 before TM's U.S. Open victory to find the last winner outside of the big three uh, who won a Grand Slam with uh, Warinka. And um, so, yeah, I think as far as a, a dark horse to name, uh, I think it's an easy choice. Frankly, I'd argue he's probably the favorite over Djokovic and Nadal at this point with their injuries uh, is Daniil Medvedev. Um, he's currently unbeaten in his last 15 matches, of, of which 10 were against um, top 10 opponents. Uh, for example, in the ATP finals in London, in the fall, he beat Djokovic, Nadal and Tiam. Uh, presumably a Djokovic and Dahl are a little bit healthier. So, you know, as you can tell, just generally speaking, he's kind of approaching the stratosphere of, of big three dominance uh, with that little streak he's on. And so far in the Australian Open, he hasn't dropped the set yet. He's uh, obviously generally a little bit more spry than Djokovic and Nadal, still just being 25. So I'm, uh, I would put my money on him to, uh, to potentially make a run at winning this title. And definitely not a safe pick. We've seen Medvedev in some major finals before, but hasn't exactly been able to pull it out. Max, what has been the most shocking result of the tournament thus far? And that is not including the fact that the state of Victoria has gone back into COVID lockdown. Yeah, that video was pretty crazy uh, that I was watching during the Djokovic match about how they uh, 
how they were telling fans to leave wasn't exactly the the greatest reception. Um, but yeah, getting back to getting back to the results. So I would say, you know, the the tournament at the sort of the highest level, it's kind of followed the script you'd expect. Like I'm not talking about Nadal or or Djokovic having lost yet, although perhaps that will come with their injuries. Uh, I'd I'd say that the biggest shock has been uh, Diego Schwartzman, uh, number eight seed in this tournament, getting bounced uh, in three sets earlier today in the third round. And I think more of the shock is who it came against. Uh, so it was against a Russian qualifier named Aslan Kartsev, who was ranked 114th in the world coming into this tournament. Uh, so anytime you see, you know, I guess pre uh, round of 16 quarterfinals. Anytime you see a top 10 player lose against a qualifier, kind of a big deal. Uh, and it, it sort of doesn't come too much as too much as that much of a surprise. I mean, if you think about like Schwartzman's recent results, I mean, he's, he hasn't done super well against the top 10. Um, he didn't make the French Open semis, understandably falling to Rafa. Um, and, and Karatsev, had yet to drop and still has yet to drop a set in this tournament. Uh, and he's in his next round uh, is going to face uh, Felix Auger-Aliassime, who just upset fellow Canadian Denis Shapovalov. So, um, so yeah, it's kind of an interesting, an interesting trend here where, you know, you get a guy kind of coming out of nowhere, um, upsetting a pretty established player and uh, yeah, turning the tournament on its head a little bit. All right, Max, thanks for joining us today, and thanks for your insights on the Australian Open. Of course. Thanks for having me. Let's move from the tennis courts to the soccer pitch, and joining us now is Lucas Pyle. Lucas, thanks for joining us. Hey, good to be back, Sam. Thanks thanks for having me, and it's uh, good to be back on the podcast. Absolutely. Thanks for joining us. So, Lucas, what should we watch for this week in the Premier League? specifically this weekend? Yeah, it's a, a big weekend uh, in the Premier League. Um, big games both coming on Saturday. We've got the classic Saturday lunchtime tie at 12.30 uh, England time, 7.30 a.m. Uh, East Coast time here in the United States. Leicester versus Liverpool, both sides uh, struggling a bit for form, especially Liverpool, um, who have just only two wins uh, in their last. You know, They won the Premier League uh Last season, ending, I believe, a 30-year run without winning the title. Big win for them, and it looked like they could sort of carry on. Uh, back in November, when Liverpool beat uh, Leicester 3-0, it seemed like they were sort of solidifying their spot uh, to continue on and get a, a second straight uh, Premier League trophy. But since then, have been on wretched reign of form. Uh, they're coming off a really tough defeat uh, against Manchester City, uh, 4-1 last weekend. Uh, so it's a big game for them. And right now they're sort of just battling to stay in those top four positions. Leicester as well. On a bit of a, a so-so run of form after beating Chelsea uh, a couple weeks ago. Um, and I think a win for either one of these sides would be huge uh, to sort of keep uh, them in the hunt for the Champions League. Right now they just seem too far off of Manchester City to really be t- uh, challenging um for the the top spot and i think the interesting thing for this game will be will we see uh you know liverpool on the final day of the transfer deadline day uh sign two new center backs uh will we they've had center back issues with injuries van dyke gomez matip all missing huge parts of the season so will we see one of these new signings come into the into the team uh i think for liverpool fans they'd hope so it allows 
you know, Fabinho or Henderson, who are normally so good in the midfield, they've had to move back to the fence to shore up uh, where they've had few numbers. So um, it'll be very in interesting to see that. And I, I got to say, I think Liverpool will win this one 2-1. That's my prediction uh, for that game. And then the other big game to look for, Man City versus Tottenham. I think this one's clear to see who's going to win. Uh, Manchester City have been incredible as of late. Uh, 15 straight wins in all competitions. Uh, coming off that win against Liverpool, a uh, win midweek against Swansea in the FA Cup as they push for an unprecedented quadruple. Um, and it could very well happen. Um, and Tottenham barely holding on to their top four hopes right now. A loss this weekend, which I think will happen, uh, might just crush those hopes. And, and once again, uh, just like in the Leicester-Liverpool game, um, you know these two sides met in November and Tottenham won 2-0, and it looked like Tottenham could be a title challenger. Now they're facing off here mid-February, and, and the roles are completely reversed. Um, and I think Man City are going to win this 3-1, and a win uh, on Saturday would really help them in their push uh, for Pep Guardiola's third Premier League trophy. Yeah, and you mentioned it briefly, but what should we look out for with the Champions League? Well, so yeah, Champions League starts back up again, and and this one has has certainly been interesting. You know, because of COVID, um, not only has it been difficult to sort of get sort of domestic leagues in place, which I think leagues have done a good job of getting games, uh, getting games going. You know, having a testing regime, uh, but of course, with the Champions League, where you have to travel to different countries, that just brings a whole new element into it. So, two games on Tuesday, one of them. RB Leipzig uh, versus Liverpool is actually being played in Budapest um, instead of in, in Germany uh, because, because of COVID and because of the new uh, sort of variant of COVID in England, uh, the German government just did not want to allow the English team Liverpool to come in. So they're having to play in a neutral venue. Um, and that should be, you know, obviously a very good game. Leipzig um, got out of probably the toughest group uh, in the group stages back um, in the fall of 2020, they knocked out Manchester United. Uh, they're an aggressive team. Uh, very surprisingly, their top scorer is their left wing back, Angelino. Um, and so, you know, it's a very good team, and Liverpool will certainly have to be at their best. Um, you know, Leipzig actually are playing right now in their game, Liverpool playing uh, tomorrow. So I think maybe the results of those games in their own respective leagues might influence how they sort of approach the game um, on Tuesday. And then, of course, the other big one is sort of the one that everyone's looking forward to watch, Barcelona versus Paris uh, Saint-Germain. Um, for soccer fans, they'll remember four years ago uh, when these two sides met in the round of 16, the incredible comeback of Barcelona scoring three goals in the final five minutes of injury time to sort of somehow uh, get them through in that. So four years on. Um, a really big game, you know, Barcelona in a bit of a rebuilding season. Um, Messi, of course, this looks like it'll be his last season with Barcelona. They have a new coach, uh, but they're starting to improve on results. Antoine Griezmann is starting to find some form after really struggling initially uh, since coming to Barcelona. They've got some good young players uh, coming in. Pedri has been uh, pretty good for Barcelona. And Ronald Koeman, their new managers, you know, certainly starting to get... Um, you know, more comfortable in this sort of bigger role as Barcelona manager coming up against Paris Saint-Germain, who are actually on a little bit of a dip in form. You know, normally they dominate the French league right now. I believe, you know, they're not in first right now. They have a new manager, Maurizio Pochettino, 
Um, and it should be, you know, a really, really, you know, interesting game. I think on paper, PSG have the, the better team. That of course they've got Mbappe and Neymar. Um, but it'll be incredibly interesting to see, you know, how these two sides, you know, face off. Messi coming up against his former teammate and Neymar, and we'll see how it goes. I think, you know, PSG have the better players. I think they should win this. Um, but it'll be a, a really interesting one to watch, and that's certainly the one that I'll be watching. Awesome. Thank you, Lucas. Thanks for all of the soccer talk, and thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. So as Lucas mentioned briefly, we've had a bit of a challenge so far with the pandemic. We saw that with the Australian Open, obviously, the state of Victoria going back into lockdown. And now we're bringing in Jenny Liu to talk about the NBA. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us. And our first question today is going to be, how is the NBA handling the season amidst COVID-19? So I thought they handled it a lot better last season with the bubble and the testing protocols. And I think they're still trying this season, but it could be better. Obviously, I understand that uh, players don't want to be apart from their families again for more months this time because last season it was just for the playoffs but I think the least the NBA could do right now is not allow fans and that's not a league-wide rule right now because a few teams are allowing fans right now including the Jazz which I see a lot of uh, fans in the stadium than I would expect and they are planning to open up uh, more stadiums which I think is a mistake and what happened with Kevin Durant the other week when he was allowed to play but then pulled out of the game third quarter when the, a person he was in close contact with tested positive was a huge blow to the NBA's image regarding COVID because he should have never played that game. So it really made it seem like the NBA were just uh, faking their concerns about COVID. And another thing is that I think the All-Star game also be a mistake if allowed to happen. I think voting for All-Stars and naming the All-Stars and giving them bonuses should still happen. Um, but that should be all. I think the NBA should just forego the all-star game. Yeah, and we've seen a lot of players openly outspoken against the all-star game this season. But let's take our focus elsewhere and talk a little bit about the Dallas Mavericks and Mark Cuban, who said that the Mavericks will no longer be playing the national anthem before their games. Do you think that the NBA should require a national anthem pregame? Yeah, this is a huge debate right now in the NBA, and I think that Mark Cuban was in his right um, because he really was just representing his players, which we all know um, the Dallas Mavericks have a lot of international players, um, and so they don't really identify with the U.S. national anthem, and so I think that it should be okay for them to say that they don't want to play it during the game. Like, I don't think it should be a lead league-wide requirement I think that really is the wrong message um, and I think teams should be able to decide whether or not they want to play it because after all we want to empower our players and um, the the NBA saying that they're requiring it of all teams is really just not giving the players voice and personally um, like I just don't think the national anthem should be required for the same reason that I don't think the pledge of allegiance should be required in classrooms. Let's pivot now back on court for some more on court talk where we'll take you all the way to Brooklyn. Let's talk a little bit about the James Harden trade. So far, do you think it's been worth it? This is a team that's now struggling defensively without Jared Allen. Do you think the trade has been worth it? 
Um, we've yet to see, but right as of right now, I don't think it was worth it because Brooklyn obviously traded away uh, Jared Allen, which was a huge part of their defense and a lot of other players. They traded away their whole bench and they traded away a good portion of their future. So um, whether or not the trade will be worth it really depends on if he wins them a title and he has to win them a title within the next few years. And I think that when this trade happened, a lot of people had the idea that this was sort of the same thing as KD joining the Warriors. Um, and it would be for sure that Brooklyn would have an easy chip this year, but that's clearly wrong. It's going to be really hard for them. Uh, we can see that they already have a lot of problems. They're way too top heavy right now. And um, they really need to do something about their bench. And so I think that We've yet to see whether it was worth it or not, but I think that if they um, are going to have a chance at the title, they need to figure out how to give Harden the ball. Absolutely. And while we're on the topic, talk to me a little about who you think the contenders are for the title right now. Um, so obviously we have the Lakers, which have uh, they have a really deep bench. And during the offseason, they made really great trades um, and moves. And so I think that um, they have a great chance at repeating this year. But this is a pretty special season. Like we've seen that any team can beat any other team right now. And I think that other front runners for the title are the Utah Jazz, which is arguably the best team right now in the league. Um, the Denver Nuggets, of course, and in the East. Um, we have Bucks, but I think the 76ers also have a very good chance. Awesome. and and. Talking a little bit more about greatness, who do you think the rookie of the year and the MVP are going to be this season? For rookie of the year, I think that LaMelo Ball is the clear front runner. And I have to admit that um, I didn't really believe in him before the season, and it took me a long time to warm up um, to him. Um, and he did have a rather slow start to the season because although he was making like highlights of the night, making flashy dimes, um, he's just started playing really great games and uh, the coach has put him in a, a, as a starting point guard. And so I think that he's really showing that he's not just a playmaker for others, but that he can also get his own baskets. And James Wiseman is a close second. And I think he's been really great. Um, on the Warriors before he had to sit out this uh, last road trip. And Halliburton has also been great. I think that our first pick, Anthony Edwards, has been rather underwhelming. And in hindsight, I think that LaMelo should have been the first pick. And um, in regards to the MVP, I think that the top three right now are Embiid, Jokic, and LeBron. And Katie and Kawhi and Steph are obviously on the chart. Um, but I think that, yeah, the, the three are really Embiid, Jokic, and LeBron. And um, LeBron has been super consistent and reliable as always. But I think that Embiid and Jokic have a lot more impact on their team right now. And Embiid is obviously having a career year. And Jokic has been dominating and leading the Nuggets. Um, and personally, I would go with Embiid. But it's very, very close between those three. Absolutely. A lot of star power in the NBA right now. Jenny, thanks for joining us today to talk about the NBA. Thank you so much. 
And now we're going to send you to the Athletes Corner, where we have our very own Noah Goldstein speaking to Travis Clawson of Tufts Golf. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's edition of Athletes Corner. I'm Noah Goldstein here alongside Travis Clawson of the Tufts Golf Team. Today, we're going to ask Travis a couple of questions about golf, what the team is up to, and what they're looking at COVID-wise. So first, Travis, I want you to just give everyone a a little bit of background, if you don't mind, on what the team has been able to do with COVID, um, what you're hoping to do soon, any news you're waiting on, anything like that, the state of the the team right now. Thanks for having me, Nella. Um, Basically, just as other teams go, we we can't play. Uh, We're looking for competition. We've been uh, competition-less since last fall, unfortunately. But luckily, due to the um, just the idea of golf and the fact that it's naturally pretty socially distanced, we've been able to practice um, per, per normally. In the fall, we had a full practice schedule um, going out to the golf course three days a week. And um, we were able to still follow protocol and make that work. So it was still a, a decently fun semester, and we got to do more than other sports, I understand. Um, but the main goal is still to get out on the course and play in tournaments against other schools. That's, that's what we're here for. And so we're, we're looking to possibly do that in some, in some form in the spring, but it's not looking good. Uh, I know NESCAC, uh, is not close to having much serious competition. Um, and so it's going to come down to maybe even making our own competition, uh, with head to head matches with other schools, um, and whatnot, just make the best of it and uh, hopefully come back for a really strong and normal senior year. Thank you for that, Travis. That's some good insight. And you mentioned the NESCAC and their reluctance, uh, seeming reluctance at least, towards having a spring season. So I was wondering if we could get a little bit of perspective on negotiations with the NESCAC. Um, We saw the letter come out, and that's been a hot topic of conversation. So maybe your thoughts on that. Um, yeah, it, it seems that NESCAC doesn't want to go forward unless they have, um, the approval of every school and certain athletic directors and schools are not super keen on participating. And so it's hard to get, um, some sort of league format when you don't have other schools on board. I know, um, President Monaco has been pretty vocal about trying to get us to play, but unfortunately you're only as um, fast as your slowest member. And if there are certain schools in the league that don't think it's safe, then it's going to be really hard to, to actually compete. I think a lot of it comes down to just getting general COVID numbers down. If national numbers go down and schools um, don't have any outbreaks, then I think people will be having a very different conversation in March. That's interesting. And obviously something that we're going to be watching with all sports, but especially a sport like golf, when there is such an ability to truly avoid, um, you know, contact between individuals yep. from different schools, maybe they be able to work something out. That's the hope for you for sure. And all of us are hoping for you as well. Uh, speaking of that, you know, we think of golf as not being traditional as a team sport in that you generally are competing, you know, by yourself, you, mm-hmm. you don't have a teammate in your ear, but I know that the team here is very close and you in a normal year are able to do a lot of things together and play together, be very close to their teammates. What has the team tried to do, um, given the circumstances to remain close and, you know, make freshmen feel at home and all of that? 
Um, it's, it's been really tough. Um, honestly, a lot of it's come with just having our normal practice in the fall, being able to see each other's faces, you know, a few times a week was really, really helpful. I know we were, we were lucky enough to do that and other sports didn't get the chance to do that. So just being able to compete with ourselves was really nice. In the fall, we had a ton of intra team events, um, where we would do, you know, two man competitions, we would do some scrambles, some head-to-head match play. And so we were able to keep the competitiveness up and keep some good team chemistry going. But to be honest, um, it is a very individual sport. And so when you're out on the course, um, there's only so much team chemistry that's there. And a lot of it comes from even just having social events that um, you know, we, can't, we can't have right now. So I would definitely say team chemistry is, is not uh, where it normally would be in a year. Uh, and that's part of what we're looking forward to getting back to normal is being able to hang out with ourselves and be more of a family than, than we can during COVID. Thank you for that, Travis. All right. Now, just to wrap up, we'll do a couple of fun questions. So first I got to ask who is Tufts golf's Bryson DeChambeau? Um, that's, that's Mac Bradle of the lacrosse team. He's a, he's a multi-sport athlete. He's, he's not the biggest, but pound for pound hits it incredibly far. Um, but he's getting rivaled now by, by Malcolm Herbert. He's uh, undergoing wrist surgery, but he is, he is Mr. Speed on the team. And I know he's been watching a lot of Bryson videos trying to get that uh, yardage up. So speaking of Bryson, who hits the longest drive on the team? Um, I, think, I think that is uh, Malcolm Herbert right now. He uses all uh, 6'2 of that frame, and he can get a lot of speed. But... Um, I think if Mac was able to uh, spend, you know, a full season on the golf team, he uh, he might be able to compete. He spends half his time out in lacrosse, so I don't blame him. Get that, get that. All right, who has the most uh, golf style on the team? Golf style? Oh, um, I I think I have to go with myself there. Honestly, I've got uh, some some good color coordination, tons of tons of logos from around the country, and so I'm gonna give that one to myself. All right, and. Uh, what professional golfer is Adam Schwimmer most like? Oh, um, hmm, that's tough. I think I think he's a he's a Jason Duffner type of guy. Jason keeps, Duffner keeps his head down. People, uh, you know, not a lot of emotion on the course, but uh, he comes up when he's needed, and um, I think he's gonna have a really good senior year. And one last question: Who is the team's John Daly? Oh. <laughs> That's a tough one. Um, without getting into too much specifics, I, I think that's also Mac. Um, just an absolute character on the course. Um, but, but now that I think about it, I, I think Henry Hughes, who's a graduating senior, also has a lot of John Daly traits. He shows up to the course, no practice, no, no practice swings, um, and he can reliably uh, beat most of us and really doesn't put any work in. John Daly, I think, once said, if I practice as much as Tiger, I'd be better than him, but... That's kind of how I feel about Henry Hughes, too. All right. Well, that will do it for today. Thank you so much, Travis. Um, and this is the Athletes Corner. Thank you, Noah. And that'll do it for this week's episode of JumboCast, the podcast. Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Sam Brill. And a special thanks to Trevor Russo, Max Goldfarb, Lucas Pyle, Jenny Liu, Noah Goldstein, and Travis Clawson from Tufts Golf for joining us this week on the podcast. Join us next week for more sports news on and off the hill.